Hey there, welcome to Saturday Night School. You know, in doing this show, sometimes I, I hear myself, like as I'm saying it, as I'm speaking, you know, as I am right now, I, I will say something and I immediately think, oh, this sounds like I'm being self-superior. This sounds like I'm saying, I've mastered that feeling. I Oh, I've mastered what it is to, to have control over what you feel and what you think and what you do. And here's what I do that's different from what other people do, and that makes me better. You know, I feel like it comes across that way. I don't know how accurate that is. I mean, something I will say, though, is that if I ever seem like I am particularly harsh or judgmental, just imagine the scathing light that I see myself under. And not in a self-hating way. But just think of the scathing light that... I see myself under. That's the only way I could put it. And and again, it's not a self-hatred thing. In the same way that if I ever come across harsh or judgmental about other people or other things, it doesn't even have to be people. It could be just things. You know, that's not coming from a place of hatred or necessarily disgust either. I mean, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes there is disgust. I mean, I do. That is something I feel sometimes. I don't really feel hatred. Even though I continually harp on the point that hatred is as natural to us as love. It's as natural to us as every other emotion on the spectrum. And the idea that hatred is some sort of alien, it's, it's some sort of diabolical alien force. That just means you're going to have little to no awareness or control over your inevitable hatred. So I would never try to claim that I don't hate. I don't hate nothing. You know, I hate some things. But I'm aware of it. And I try to understand why that is. And I'm very against this idea of the brand, the... the scarlet letter capital H hatred that is used against people these days because that itself is an act of hatred and when you don't recognize that hatred is universal it's it transcends ideology it transcends political stance it transcends belief it is a human universal, and it is a part of all of us individually and collectively, and it plays out a little bit differently individually. You know, it plays out differently individually than it does collectively, but those play into each other too, of course. But, you know, when I, I, I do feel that when I'm particularly harsh about other people or other things that go on, you know, it really isn't coming from a place of hatred, because if something's coming from a place of hatred, you probably won't even hear me talk about it. Because I don't want to let it slip. <laughs> I don't want to let it slip. I don't want to let it be completely known. I don't want to make it explicit. And that doesn't mean it's something just nasty. I mean, it could be something honestly so minor. The things that kind of make me feel disgusted or hateful are often not a big deal at all. But yet those are the things that catch me. I think because they aren't a big deal. It's easier to... Like When something is a big deal, I almost prepare myself for it. I square my shoulders up to it. But when something isn't a big deal, I think that I have my guard down and those feelings come out easier. 
But it's a, a human universal. Hatred is a human universal. And to deny feelings of hate in yourself just mean that, that all that means is that you're going to act out hatefully in some way, but you're going to call it something else. Oh, I'm not hateful. I, I'm not a Nazi. I'm not a Nazi. You're going to act it out in some other way. But I've said on here before, I've hate Dar. I have hate Dar, people. Gay people have gator, gaydar. Bats have sonar. I have hate Dar. I can tell if you're being hateful instantly. My radar goes off, and I don't hate you for that. I just know it. I'm just, I can tell you. If you ever want to know if you're being hateful, come to me. Come to me. I will tell you. But um, I don't tell people, I don't volunteer that, though. The thing about my hate Dar services is that you have to be open. You have to come to me. You have to be seeking my counsel. I'm not going to just come up to you and go, you're being hateful. Because that always goes really well. It always goes really well when you confront someone and say, you're being hateful. Because someone who's being hateful, they really, they respond well. They they, they suddenly become really self-aware and receptive to outside opinion. When, you're, when they're confronted and labeled with the scarlet letter, capital H. Um, but, uh, you know, all that said, though, I'm, I'm prone to certain petty feelings. And, you know, when it comes to the seven deadly sins, I've thought about this, and I, I do know that my seven deadly sin, my, my sin, I'm sure I have, I'm sure I fall into all of them. I think we all, we all experience all of the seven deadly sins. It's not like you only have one. But, you know, there is an idea out there that there's one that is particularly strong. And for me, that's pride. You know, I'm proud of what I do. I have a certain pride. And, and I recognize, you know, I try to hold it back. You know, not that I feel the need to, you know, stand up on a... I don't need to climb up on a podium with my hands on my hips... But at the same time, I'm just aware of that. I'm aware of the fact that I have to reel in my own pride. And that's not narcissism. It's not ego. I mean, it is ego. But, you know, it's not some... When I say that, you know, my seven deadly sin is pride, it's not like it's some out-of-control narcissistic personality disorder. I'm just aware of the fact that I like what I do. And I like who I am. That said, though, like I, like I said earlier, you know, I do see myself under a scathing light. And so if it ever comes across like I'm being particularly nasty or critical, maybe I am. Maybe I'm going too far. But I don't really use a different standard for other people in the world around me than I use for myself. Or the people I care about, for that matter. Yeah, if you know someone, you're more likely to give them a pass. If you have an, a long, enduring relationship with somebody, you're more likely to give them a pass than you would a total stranger who does the same thing. But that doesn't change my standards. It doesn't change the fact that if a friend does something that I find highly 
disagreeable or unethical. It's going to bother me in the same way a stranger does, but the way I handle it would be different. And the same is true for myself because I've done unethical things. I've done, you know, even though I say I'm prone to pride, PTP, prone to pride, I've done many things I'm not proud of at all. And if you're... If your sin is pride, you can imagine how it feels to do things that you're not proud of. You can imagine how it feels for a proud person to do things that he's not proud of. You don't forget them, that's for sure. But, you know, another thing that I really struggle with, something that I just haven't been able to completely wrap myself, I haven't really been able to wrap my mind around how to do this, is... When you feel that something has been taken from you, when someone has taken an idea from you, especially creatively, and you know, I'm a small-time hood, you know, I'm a small-time hoodlum, so I don't know what it's like to be someone in a position of influence, you know, I'm an obscure character in this world, and... It's funny how saying that sounds really grandiose, but it's true, you know, I'm, I'm just a nobody... But I have experienced, I guess what you'd call intellectual theft, creative theft. I have had ideas taken from me before. And whenever you talk about this kind of thing, you run into, I mean, you end up sounding like the guy who killed Dimebag Daryl. The guy who killed Dimebag Daryl. Well, the, the guys who killed Dimebag Daryl, there were two of them. Their, name, their names were Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. You know, this is why you can't trust history, because you're going to read in history books that there was a school shooting carried out by two young men in Colorado in 1999. That never happened. And you're also going to read that a single lunatic killed Dimebag Daryl of Damage Plan and Pantera in 2004. I think it was 2004. For whatever reason, you know, the the powers that be have made those separate events. They were it was a single event. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold killed Dimebag Daryl. No, but uh the guy who killed Dimebag Daryl, he claimed years earlier that Pantera had stolen his lyrics. And that was one of the, I mean, he had some sort of mental illness. He had some sort of disorder. But he believed that Pantera had stolen his lyrics. You know, yeah, you know, Phil Anselmo snuck into this guy's house and leafed through his journal. You ever seen Phil Anselmo leaf? You ever seen Phil Anselmo commit burglary and leaf through someone's private journal and steal his lyrics? Which would be a great story for a song. You know, I would forgive the theft. I would forgive that act of theft because it makes such an interesting story that Phil Anselmo broke into this guy's house, went through his journal, and stole his lyrics. He at least put some effort into that theft. Most people who steal ideas creatively don't put nearly that much effort. So I would forgive Phil Anselmo. I mean, I'd forgive Phil Anselmo. Say Phil Anselmo 30 times fast. Um... I'd forgive Phil Anselmo, just like Batty would. I'd forgive him for just about anything. And I'm not even, I'm not a fanatic. I'm not a Pantera fanatic. Even though one of the first, it might have been the first tape I ever bought. The first cassette I ever bought 
was vulgar display of power. And I wasn't even a big Pantera fan. I was like seven or eight years old. My sister's friends were all into that stuff, and I thought it was cool. I never bought another Pantera album, but I think my first album was Pantera. I love that album cover still, the guy getting punched in the face. But anyway, I'd forgive Phil Anselmo for many things, but I'd especially forgive him if he broke into that guy's house and stole his lyrics. <laughs> and, and how fucked up is it that that guy killed Dimebag? Like, he was upset about his lyrics getting stolen, which I imagine, I don't know, I, I, here's the thing, this is, what you, this is what happens when you don't keep up on your Pantera fandom. I don't know who wrote their lyrics. I don't know if it was a Geezer Butler sort of situation where the bass player wrote the lyrics. I think his name is Rex. Uh, I don't know if, if old Rex wrote the lyrics. I don't know, maybe Dimebag wrote the lyrics. Maybe Vinnie Paul wrote the lyrics. I don't know who wrote, I don't, I don't know who wrote Pantera's lyrics, okay? You know, I don't know. I really don't know. I would assume it's Phil Anselmo. The, the lyrics sound like Phil Anselmo. Like when you see Phil Anselmo, hey buddy, hey, hey, hey baddie. Hey baddie, you sound, you sound like Phil Anselmo. Um, but, uh, this is just, this is what we need. We need this right now. We need, we need chaos. We need this. But when you hear Phil Anselmo talk, it sounds like he, he could actually make those into lyrics. Like Phil Anselmo just talking could be his lyrics. Hey, Batty, no, no. Stealing my lyrics. Batty's stealing my lyrics. But anyway, long story short, this guy killed Dimebag Daryl, and one of this guy's schizophrenic delusions was that Pantera had once stolen his lyrics. And I'd like to know what those lyrics were. They were probably so simple. They are probably something so simple that you could accuse anybody of stealing them. Walking down the street. The Sopranos theme song stole my lyrics. Woke up this morning, got myself a gun. Those were my lyrics. And some like shitty electronic blues group stole them and used them in the bigot in my favorite TV show. But no, I mean that's a that's a difficult thing. And anytime you talk about somebody taking an idea from you, you sound like that guy who killed Dimebag Daryl. You come across, it's extremely petty and it's not attractive when you talk about that. And there's all kinds of platitudes built in to our society. Like imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And I understand that on an intellectual level. I understand the intellectual idea that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery because somebody liked your idea enough that they wanted to embody it themselves. And that's different than taking inspiration. And I guess this is worth breaking something down. Because inspiration is one thing. And even when you can hear inspiration, you know whether somebody is doing something creative. You know whether they are using it in their own fashion. And usually that goes somewhere. Usually that goes beyond that initial inspiration. And then the other acceptable form of this is when you have a symbiotic relationship to somebody... You know, symbiosis is overlooked. And put that on my headstone. 
put that on my headstone when I die. I mean, I want to be cremated. But make me a headstone with no body below it just so that this statement can be there under my name. Symbiosis is overlooked. And symbiosis is not when something is explicitly stated, but when you are close to somebody, maybe you're a collaborator, maybe you're a lifelong friend, and there's a degree, it's like there's an open channel where they can kind of take some things from you. They can't steal your ideas, but they can take things from you and use them in their own way, and there's something acceptable about it because it's almost like your fate is intertwined. If your fate is intertwined with somebody, you have a symbiotic relationship. And if it's a symbiotic creative relationship, and hopefully it transcends creativity, because creativity isn't the be-all, end-all by any means. Um, But, uh, you know, if you have a symbiotic relationship, it's acceptable, but still you have to be respectful. You know, if you collaborate with somebody, it's acceptable to... I think to do something similar, to take inspiration or influence, direct influence from that person. And I've done that in different ways. I've done that in different ways in my life. And I could tell you exactly who the friend was that I got an idea from. And usually there was a conversation involved. It wasn't just monkey see, monkey do. But usually there's a degree of conversation. And you can tell if you cross a line. And other people know if they're crossing a line, too, if they're honest. And sometimes even in a symbiotic relationship, you can cross a line. So it's not like it's just a free-for-all. Oh, this person's my friend. I can steal what I want from them. People do that. People steal a lot from their friends. I mean, when I was growing up, just thinking of pure theft... I had, I had a couple friends who went on a stealing spree. And these people didn't steal from me. But they stole from another kid who was pretty wealthy. And uh, they had been his friends. And, you know, that's typically what you see. You typically see people prey on... It's like how someone will typically abuse someone close to them. Like, yeah, there are people who are assholes or who get in fights with strangers. But when you hear about most physical violence, it's domestic. Most murders happen among people who know each other, often well. Familiarity breeds contempt. And growing up, there were a couple examples where people stole from somebody else. And I had other friends who were, I had a friend who was a klepto, and he stole a disc man from me. He went to jail at the end of junior high and early high school and disappeared. And I ran into him later And we smoked some weed, and he was sitting in the front seat of my car. And then when he left, I noticed my disc man, no CD in it, thank God. Thank God there was no CD in it. But my disc man had been under the front seat of the car, and it was gone. And I'd known him my whole life, and he was a klepto. He had never stolen from me. One time in, I guess, junior high, he was like, oh, I found this Blockbuster card. You know, when you used to go to Blockbuster, you ever heard of renting movies? You ever heard of this thing that we did 80 years ago called Renting Movies? It's kind of like when Netflix sent DVDs in the mail. You remember that? You remember telephones? You remember when telephones had a cord? Uh, but uh, you, you remember when movies had all-white casts? Remember how things used to be? Um, but he showed me this Blockbuster card, which like you, 
all you can do with that, you still have to pay money. Like if you steal somebody, if you find or steal somebody's blockbuster card, all that means is that you can rent movies, but you still have to be the one to pay for them. So it's kind of a weird thing to steal. And my friend, he said he found it. And I looked at it and it was the name of his friend's mom. (laughs) And he was always over at their apartment. They weren't friends of mine, but I knew their name. They went to school with us and I knew they were his friends. They were these twins, actually. It was the mother of twins. And he went over there and obviously stole it. Because he stole all the time. He would he was banned from the downtown grocery store for stealing. He always stole. He later stole my disc man. But these other people I knew who stole, they weren't kleptos. They were opportunists. And they stole from friends. They went on a stealing spree. And that's typically what you see is people tend to steal from someone in proximity to them because those are the people who whose trust that you have or just who you're in proximity to. You know, it turns out I can't steal from someone who lives in Virginia because I'm in Washington. You know, the same sort of logic applies, I think, where, you know, you have to be closer to somebody personally, I think, to have certain opportunities to take advantage of them, which is why, you know, you should be a little leery of people who are too eager to be your friend or too eager to get into your life. And not that that happens to me a lot, but every once in a while you will meet someone where you're like, I don't completely trust this person's intentions. And you have to really recognize that feeling. You really have to own that feeling and say that I'm not going to be an asshole to this person, but I'm going to keep them at arm's length until they pass that probation period, however long it is. Maybe it's permanent. You're on permanent probation with me because I know you're going to steal. But that's all physical. You know, it's all material, like stealing physical things. And, you know, as I was saying, you you do have symbiotic relationships to people you're close to where it's kind of understood. Like, I don't do much writing. I don't consider myself an aspiring writer. But every once in a while, I will do some writing. And I've learned a lot from my friend Nick, who I grew up with, who, you know, spent years really writing all the time, you know, studying writers, a lot of it just organic, you know, it's not like he went to school to be a writer, but he, he really cared about the art of writing, and he passed on some things to me, not ideas necessarily, not like, not creative ideas, but techniques to be a more effective writer, and those stayed with me, and he passed those along because we have a symbiotic relationship. You know, and he's written things. I remember him writing a short story or two where I was like, oh, yeah, this came from something I told him. Not like not like he stole my idea, but just like there will be a reference or there'll be there will be an element in the story. Like, for example, he wrote a story once and he used the phrase just swimming in it. And that was something I used to say. Because I feel like I mean, when you go out in the world, remember, you're just swimming in it. You know, you don't think of yourself as being in water. But you think about oxygen, you think about this unseen atmosphere that you exist in, and you're just swimming through it, baby. You're just swimming through it. So I I said that to him about something a couple times, and we had a laugh, and then he used that in a story, I mean, just a little phrase like that. And uh, I'm cool with that, though, because there's it's symbiosis. 
Like if I had said just swimming in it to an acquaintance, somebody that I didn't feel like I had a symbiotic relationship to, I'd be a little bothered. And that has happened to me. It, it tends to happen often with language, actually. And that relates to something that happened recently, which I, I won't get specific about. I know it's annoying when somebody doesn't get into specifics. But a couple people involved in a creative project blatantly stole something from me. And they slightly tweaked it, but it's something that is undeniable. And I do know these people. And I haven't been in contact with them for a long time. And I noticed it instantly when I saw it. And it's small time. I mean, if I'm a small time hood, these guys are small time. I don't know if they deserve to get called hoods. But they're small time too. So we're talking about a small time world here. But I saw it and I was just like, come on. You know, what are you thinking? And, and I recognize that there's something, I mean, as, as much as musicians get put on a pedestal, they are some of the biggest thieves. Like when someone releases an album, musicians often don't think anything about just using artwork without approval even. If they just find a, a copy of art that they like, they will often just use it without approval. And it's happened time and time again. I mean, I was just talking to a friend last night. There's this popular electronic group from years ago that I think they were popular in the early, mid-2000s. And I never, I don't even know what they sound like. I've never heard them. But the only reason I know them at all is because they used Trevor Brown art. And I'm not even a Trevor Brown fan. I don't have a problem with him, but his art never appealed to me personally. But I'm very familiar with it. Just being into the things I'm into, I'm familiar with Trevor Brown's art. He's well known, which makes it even more egregious that they did this. But this group used Trevor Brown's art for something without crediting him, without getting permission. And it's like, what were you guys thinking in doing that? There's this idea, that, like musicians have this... It's like this idea that they can create this multimedia experience without giving credit and without, I don't know, they just think they can get away with it. I'm sure this happens in all genres, you know, I mean, this happens with collages. You know, sometimes you'll see really lazy collages where it's like, you barely manipulated this thing and you're acting like you created a new piece of art, but... You know, it's not like it's limited to musicians, but I do have something, you know, speaking of like hate and disgust, I think I do have some sort of ingrained disgust toward musicians. And I recognize that and I have to keep it in check, even though I've made music and maybe that's part of it. Not like a self-hatred thing, like, oh, I'm projecting my own disgust for myself onto other people. No, I think it's just I, I see behind the scenes. I see what's underneath and... I've just, I've known a lot of musicians who just, they'll, you know, it, it, it's not just visuals either. It's not just like stealing art for your album cover. They'll steal lyrics. They'll steal titles. And it's seen as acceptable. It's like, oh, he, oh, he named this after this book. Oh, these lyrics were taken from this guy's poem. This was taken from this. It seems to be like if you write, and then, the idea is that the music is original, so therefore the the entire package doesn't have to be entirely original because they bestowed their gift of music upon all of us, original music. Well, you know what? If I see somebody who is using somebody else's artwork, 
who's using somebody else's lyrics or taking blatant, even if it's not full-on theft, if they are just taking it and using it in some capacity, I'm less likely to trust that their music is original too. Not saying everything has to be 100% organic. I'm not saying everything has to be made 100% from scratch. But I do see a lot of a lot of creative theft in particular in music and part of that comes from the pedestal that musicians have been put on and that they put themselves on where they seem to think that they are allowed to do it. Like imagine, you know, you this has even happened. Like when somebody uses a band's music for a video or a political rally, I know that's been a controversy. When somebody uses a band's music without permission, they lose it. Oh my God, they used our music. They used our music. You know, you see that all the time. And I'm not, and, and you know, I have to be careful too, because I'm, I'm generalizing here. And I've mentioned before that I'm trying to not generalize as much. And uh, I'm generalizing about musicians. Like, there's tons of musicians that ask permission and that give proper credit. There's tons of them. But I guess the ones that don't stick out to me. And you also, I don't know, being in a certain position, sometimes you see it more than other people. Like, and I I would say that's true for me, where, like, I feel like I have a certain, I don't know, I see certain things happen from the ground up. I see where certain things come from just through knowing some of the people I do and seeing some of the things I do. And in the case I'm talking about here, where it's like, I know that these people took an idea from me. It's a really ugly feeling, I, and I don't like that I feel it. And even though I can intellectualize this idea of, oh, uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, I don't feel that. I understand that on an intellectual level, but that's the difference between the intellect, that's the difference between your cognitive thinking, your brain, your ability to process something, and that feeling you just have inside. And sometimes the more that you intellectualize a thought like that, you can actually shape your feeling. The more you repeat that to yourself, the imitation is a form of flattery. You know, that can shape how you feel, but this is one that I just haven't, because I have been able to change myself in that way. There are things that on a gut level I respond to, but by conditioning myself through thought, through just pure thought, I've been able to change that feeling somewhat or keep it at bay. But the one that I have trouble with, and this doesn't happen all the time at all, you know, it doesn't sound like this is happening to me all the time. I'm not delusional, but it has happened to me. And, uh, and I mean, I've seen things too, like, you know, again, like I'm a small time hood, you know, small time hoodlum. And I've seen, like, there's a guy I found who is actually a fan of my drawings and his, his drawings look a lot like mine, but I took influence from other people too, whose drawings look like mine. You know, that's what I mean about inspiration and influence, where I, I, I've seen things, and like, and who am I? You know, maybe I've influenced one person. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I've influenced one person, and that's an incredible thing. And when I saw this guy's artwork, though, I, I knew that he was a fan, and therefore it wasn't like I just saw this out in the wild and was like, you stole something from me. Or you, you were inspired by me, huh? You know, it's not like this was a presumption. It, it was pretty evident. And he was, he's good at what he does. And so I wasn't insulted or taken or put off by it. I was actually kind of honored in a way. 
And I'm of the belief, too, that if anybody nips at your heels enough, like if somebody comes close enough to nipping at your heels, you need to work harder. If you want to be unique, if you want to have, if you want to be a unique contributor to this world and you're constantly worried about people ripping you off, if you're constantly worried about people nipping at your heels and stealing from you, work a little bit harder and make something that they can't steal yet. Eventually they might, but work a little bit harder and don't, and don't work with that in mind. And of course there's, there's a phenomenon that happens too, where you will come across an idea and you go, oh, that's, a, that's cool. And then it gets lodged in your subconscious. And then at a later point in time, it comes back, but you forget where you heard it from. And you can easily delude yourself into believing that you came up with it because you no longer remember uh, the source. You no longer remember that somebody else said it or that you saw it somewhere else. And so when it comes back out of your subconscious, you're like, that's a cool idea. It's oddly familiar, which can be a trick because every idea that I like that has ever come to me seems familiar. And I'm talking about ideas that are 100% my own. As much as I can claim something to be my own, I'm talking about something that is my own here. And even then, there's something oddly familiar about it. So when you have that, that feeling that is something is oddly familiar about this, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it came from somewhere else and got lodged in your subconscious and then it came back out and you forgot where you saw it. Because even your own ideas can have an odd familiarity and often your best organic, unique ideas do have that sense. It's like an epiphany. It's the same exact thing where you, there's something that seems like you always knew it, but it has been activated. And that happens creatively all the time. Oh, I feel like I always saw this. I feel like I always heard this. I feel like I always thought this. And it's simply been activated. It's simply been rendered into reality. So you can easily get tricked by that with ideas that are not your own, where they seem oddly familiar, but you're not sure if it's just that sort of something that's been activated inside of you thing. But every once in a while, you come across something where you just know it was taken from you. And if you haven't had this happen to you, I'm surprised. I'm surprised if somebody has gone through life and not had somebody take something from them and to not have had some sort of petty response to it, even if it's totally inside, because I keep this stuff inside. I might share it with a confidant who understands that kind of thing. But I, I keep it for the most part inside because it is such an ugly feeling. And it's not just an ugly feeling. It's such an ugly expression to say, you took something from me. You know, if it's blatant intellectual theft and somebody's profiting from it. But when it's all small time, when we're all just a bunch of little bubbles floating around, it's especially ugly to confront the issue. You just have to let it go and hope that... The scale tips in your favor, I guess. Not even that. Not even scale tipping in your favor. You just just hope things balance out. It's not even about your favor. You just hope the scale balances out. And, and in this case, in this particular case, my idea already exists. Like the idea that I came up with is already out in the world. Hence these people having seen it. Because if, you know, because it's, it's another thing. This is how you know you're insane is if you think somebody stole something from you that they never even saw. Like, you never even put it out in the world, and you're thinking somebody stole it from you. 
you never expressed it to them and you think they took it. That's how you know you're delusional. That's how you know you're the guy who killed D- Dimebag Daryl. Because that guy, like, the idea that Pantera, like, leafed through his journal, his diary where he wrote lyrics, you know, that's delusional. But when you've already put something out into the world or expressed it in some way, and then somebody who's peripherally connected to you uses it, well, then you know. You have an idea. And it might even, it might have been done unconsciously. You know, I'm I'm willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. But that doesn't mean I forgive, because this is a, this does bring out my pettiness. And this is something that my closest friends and I all have in common. We are all petty when we feel that something has been taken from us. And, uh, you know, I'm aware of, uh, you know, I, and like I said, like I use ideas from friends. I've been influenced by friends. The way I play guitar has been influenced by a certain friend and he knows it. He didn't teach me everything. I'm not just mimicking him. I'm not as good as him, but he knows that I, he knows that he activated something. He didn't sit down and say, here's what you do, but he knows that he activated something in me. In several people, a couple people. And I'm all too happy to credit him with that. Not credit him with my ideas, but just to credit him with some sort of activation, some sort of inspiration. Kind of, I would say he was a wind that pushed me in a certain direction, my friend Miles. But again, there was a sense of familiarity where it was like, oh, this is something that I've always kind of had. This is something that I've always been kind of like somehow aware of, but you activated it. And you don't even need to say that to somebody. It's not like I have conversations where I say, oh, you activated this. In... Thank you for activating me. Who the hell talks like that? I'm just trying to explain it here. Because if you have a symbiotic friendship, symbiotic relationship, you don't have to say all these things. There's an understanding. There's a shared fate. There is a shared fate in that. But when somebody who you don't have a symbiotic relationship does something, it's hard not to feel petty. And like I was saying, the people I'm closest to in life, I don't think any of us have a good handle on this. I don't think any any of my closest friends and in different with, with their own different things going on. You know, because I'm talking about everybody I know everybody I know I feel like has a hard time with this. Which just tells you something about the platitude, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I almost feel like that phrase was created by an imitator. I almost feel like the phrase, that was, some imitator came up with that to justify the fact that they steal things. And, you know, it's funny too, I was doing a a Wikipedia dive the other night, reading about shit that I don't even care about, which is pretty typical of Wikipedia, late night Wikipedia reading, and I was reading about some band trying to remember who it was I don't want to accuse a band because I was reading about just some like British rock bands from the 70s and I was reading about one of them and in their in the bio in the biographical section it was talking about how they were playing a certain style of music and the whole band went to go see another band I want to say they went to go see T-Rex or something like that and after the show they were like we're gonna do that now the band just said that as a group and you know, I'd like to believe maybe one of the band members in the back of his mind was like, "Oh man, I don't, I don't think we should just do that." But the band got together and they were just like, "We're gonna do what they're doing." 
And they probably mutated, like they probably ended up doing something somewhat unique. I mean, it probably wasn't as literal as that, but that's how it was explained in the thing I was reading. They literally just saw this band and said, we're going to do that now. Monkey see, monkey do. At least they're, at least later, you know, at some point they credited it. At least they admitted that because a lot of people are unwilling to admit that. Which is another reason why you can't confront people about these things. Unless it's blatant, like I said, unless it's like a blatant copyright infringement. Like if somebody was using, like if I found out that somebody was using a drawing of mine as their album art without my permission. I mean, I'd, I'd show up at their house in a ninja outfit when they were sleeping. You know what I mean? Uh, that's how I feel about it. But no, I, I, that would be a different issue because that's blatant theft of something that is that already exists that was created by my hand. But if it's, you know, less obvious, if it's something where you just know an idea was taken, it's a little different. But I'm, I'm a firm believer in giving credit where it's due and you don't lose anything by giving credit. You know, because we are stingy people and we think that giving credit is somehow losing something. And if you think that giving credit where it's due is taking something away from you or that you are losing something, you're stingy, you're dishonest, and you don't understand the infinite resource that is available to you. It's like somebody who thinks that being kind is a finite resource. And and if, oh, I've been kind to two people today, I've run out of kindness. Because I can tell you that hatred is not a finite resource either. None of these things are, are finite resources. So if you, you know, because certainly, like, I know, I know that negative feelings, I know that hatred, I know that disgust is not a finite resource. Yeah, it's not a finite resource because when you open that channel, when you start ranting and raving, when, you, when you're like, I'm just going to vent. This is like such a common experience. Like I remember with coworkers who were my friends, like when we were upset about our jobs and the boss and this and that, we would justify what we were doing by saying, oh, we're just venting. But you never close that vent. Once you open that vent, you just keep going because it's attractive. And you never run out of things to say. You never run out of disgust. It's infinite. And so it's good to vent, but you have to remember that if you open that vent, you have to close it because it's not going to close itself. And there's an infinite amount of stuff that comes out of that vent when you are venting. But the same is true in a good sense where, you know, when you open that vent to vent good things, which you should do, good things should be a form of venting as well. It shouldn't be excessive. It shouldn't be unnatural, but when you are feeling good, it is completely acceptable to vent in that way. Let me tell you how I feel good. Let me tell you about something good that happened. Some people don't want to hear that, but, you know, it's it's good to vent good things. It's good to vent good things. And so these things are finite resources, and the same is true for giving credit. Giving credit, giving acknowledgement is infinite. You can keep doing it as long as there are things to credit. And you know when you've come up with a really good idea because you don't even feel like you can take credit yourself. But not that you can give credit to somebody else. Not that you took it from somebody else. But I know that the things that I'm most proud of, I wouldn't be able to 
really say that I did it even though I did. Anything creative I've ever done, I don't feel... Anything creative I've ever done that I truly feel uh, strong about, I don't entirely feel like I can take credit for it. Not just because it may have taken inspiration, there may have been some idea planted in my head, not even that. It's just simply that it just feels like it came through me. And it feels somehow dishonest. And this is like this sounds like some cliche, pretentious artist thing where it's like, I'm just a conduit. I'm just a conduit. And things, these ideas come through me from somewhere else. But it does feel that way sometimes. Even though that's sort of an annoying artist cliche, the idea of being a conduit. Are you a conduit or a condom? Are you a condom where you're a receptacle? Are you a conduit where things are flowing through you? No, it's, it is sort of an artist cliche to feel that way, but... You know, I think some of the most unique ideas come through that sort of process where there's nothing intellectual about it. You didn't think about it at all. It just happened. But it's sometimes you do come across things where, and it's not just, you know, to get away from me, to get away from my own experience where, you know, it's like, oh, I know that these people took something from me. It's happened so few times. Like, yeah, there have been a few times. I'll, I'll give myself that. I'll say there have been a few times where I feel that something creative was was heavily lifted from me, I would say. And, and to people who aren't small-time, to people who are big-time hoodlums, they experience this all the time. And they've probably learned to deal with that. But they are, if you're a big-time hoodlum, it's less of a concern because you're kind of, the spotlight's on you, you know, and people know what you're doing. But when you you know, operate in the shadows a little more, it can be, it, it's almost easier to be petty. You know, when you exist more in the shadows, it's kind of, because you don't necessarily feel like people are going to see your contribution. Whereas, like, if you have a certain platform, people will know, you know, what you did. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. That's the thing. You know, I'm, a couple of days ago, my mom died a year ago. You know, a couple of days ago was the anniversary of my mom dying. And like when you put things in that context and that itself is kind of a cliche, like it's not life or death. And that's absolutely true. These things aren't life or death. They're the little absurdities that get us twisted up. But I have to be honest with myself and say that I can't completely shake that feeling when it happens. And I notice it with other things, too. Like, like I was saying, to get away from me, I'll see it in other things. Like I will see people in certain niche circles do something and I'm like oh they're they're pretty much making an exact copy of what this other person did how can they feel okay with that is the desire to express yourself to make a name for yourself so strong that you're willing to lift an aesthetic a sound an identity from somebody else and the answer to that is yes we know that that's true in the way that we simply live our lives. We see that people do it with their own personal identities. People who aren't artists, people who aren't creative, people who don't come up with ideas. There are people who simply do that in the way they dress, in the way they talk, in what they're interested in. So we can see where this this is part of everything. And that petty emotion is part of everything too. I mean, you'll hear it in, in a hallway. Walking through high school, you know, oh, I, I got my hair cut like this, and then 
do you see a week later Brian got his hair cut just like mine? And you want to look at that person and say, well, where did you see the haircut? Did you come up with your haircut? Did you invent that haircut? Did you, or did you see somebody else? Did you go into the city and see some cool dude with that haircut? Are you just doing what Brian did to you, Mike? Are you just doing what Brian did to you, Mike? Who'd you do that to? But sometimes people are iconoclastic. Sometimes people do come up with their own ideas. Not everybody is just taking something. Because that's another one of those sayings. It's another one of those platitudes where it's like everybody, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, as the Bible says, which I believe in. But just because there's nothing new under the sun doesn't mean there aren't unique configurations that haven't been completely uh, used. You know, it's not like there aren't unique configurations that you can come up with, even though the components aren't completely new. And everything has to start with somebody. And chances are that person doesn't feel like taking full credit because they feel like it just kind of came to them or came through them. So that's an interesting thing about it sometimes where the most iconoclastic person, the most unique person doesn't even want to take credit because they don't even feel that they, it just kind of happened, you know, and that's an interesting thing about it too. And, you know, it's a jewel. A lot of this comes down to the endless pursuit of jewels because it's not just that you are seeking jewels that are external to you. You want to create jewels. And when you feel that you've created a jewel and somebody else turns around and says, like, I created that jewel. There's something that just a primal, visceral feeling that you get. But you have to have restraint because you don't want to express that pettiness, even though I feel that pettiness. And I, it's, it's really the one thing, you know, maybe not the only thing, but it's the single one thing that I'm most aware of that I wish that I could find. And I, and I have moments, I have moments where I reconcile that, um, about three years ago, a good friend of mine, we were out with a couple friends and, uh, one of them was like, Oh, this guy ripped off your artwork. And I looked at what he showed me and I was like, I don't even see it. And I also don't even care. And in that moment, I knew that I had made progress because I actually didn't see it. I truly did not see the similarities. But two of my friends seemed to think so. And this is another example of somebody who had some sort of peripheral. Like, this is a person who was definitely aware of me. Another bubble. Another small-time bubble floating down, like, the same little creek. Uh, and so this is a person who was aware of me. I knew that, but I just didn't see the similarities. I just, I, I, it, the similarities were so vague that there's no way that I could have any kind of direct response to it. And then not only that, as I, at that moment, I was like, I don't even care if they did. And I knew I'd made progress because years earlier, I would have found an excuse to feel upset. Years earlier, I, w- I would have found an excuse to be mad anyway. But I did feel like I had made progress. But since then, and I mean, as I'm talking about right now with this recent thing, I don't uh, have I don't have control over that. I don't have total control over that. Maybe someday I will. If this is my one thing, if this is my one lesson that I have to wrestle with, that's okay. You know, I had an experience. I mean, a lot of people, like I said, it doesn't even have to be creative. It doesn't have to be some something that happened in some niche. Bubbles floating down the creek. 
We're just a bunch of bubbles floating down the creek. Somebody's going to steal that. Somebody's going to steal that idea. Somebody's going to write a poem called Bubbles Floating Down the Creek. We're all small-time hoodlums, bubbles floating down a creek. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is, uh, because the Sopranos theme song stole my lyrics, woke up this morning, you know, because they stole that highly original lyric of mine called Woke Up This Morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to steal their music. I'm going to steal that back track. I'm going to steal the backing track and add my own lyrics. And they're going to go, I'm just a small-time hoodlum, small little bubbles floating down the creek. That's how it's going to go. But uh, anyway, um, you know, it's, it's something that just happens, too. Like, I mean, it, it happens when you're growing up a lot. I, I still have a, a memory of a kid, a friend of mine from junior high, and I, I told him some kind of joke. I made a joke to him, and I literally watched him swivel around. Like, he, he turned, he heard the joke, he laughed, he turned around, and there were a group of girls there, and he told them my joke without giving credit, and they laughed, and I was just kind of looking at him. And he, he turned back around, and he was laughing, like he was very proud of himself. He was laughing because he, he, was, he impressed the girls. Nothing's going to make you happier than that. You impressed the girls. <laughs> and uh, the pretty bubbles. You, you're, one of the, you're one of the bubbles floating down the creek, and you impressed the pretty bubbles. The bubbles that have kind of a shimmer to them, a rainbow glimmer. They got a shimmer, a rainbow glimmer. No, but he impressed the girls, and you could tell he was very happy with himself, and he turned around, and he saw the look on my face, disgust. Again, that word, disgust. And he kind of, like, he, he, his smile dropped, and, he, and then he, he turned back around to the girls, and he goes, oh, Eric told me that. But it was too late. It was too late. He, if he wanted, you know, if he wanted to do me good, he would have said that, he would have said, hey, Eric just told me this joke, and then said it. But by the time he gave me credit after he saw the look on my face... It was too late. Like, they weren't listening, you know? Not that it matters. Uh, obviously, I never forgot it. <laughs> and I've done that to other people. You know, I, I think about, uh, you know, when I met my friend Miles, we were talking about mental illness. And we were talking about how some people invent mental illness in their life. Yeah, there are some people who do have a legitimate mental illness they can't control. But sometimes it's the product of somebody getting creative like they're trying to find a creative way to deal with their human pain. And I've known people like this. I've known people who are legitimately crazy, but I've also known a couple people. I've been close to a couple people. Maybe I am one of these people who kind of invents a an issue. They find a creative way of inventing an issue that seems diagnosable. But it's it's just sort of this exercise they're doing. And I remember Miles put it very succinctly when we were talking about this way back when, and he said, you know, I think a lot of mentally ill people are just smart and depressed. They're depressed people who are too smart for their own good, and they're inventing a creative way of dealing with that. They're expressing that in a creative way because they're smart. Uh, he didn't say that part, but he just said he thinks they're smart and depressed. And I was like, yes. And another friend of mine came down to visit, and we went over to Miles' house, and we were talking about this same subject, because, I mean, we've been talking about this forever. 
And uh, I said that out loud. We were stoned, maybe drinking, and I said, well, actually, a friend of my, the friend that I brought down had actually been diagnosed with something, and he was on lithium and some other weird stuff, and we were, we were just talking about mental health and all these things. We were, we were having a conversation about mental health. We were talking about crazy people, okay? And not crazy people who pretend they're crazy. And I made that comment. I said, you know, I think some of these people are just smart and depressed. And then I immediately like made eye contact with Miles because I realized what I had done. And he had that same, he didn't have a look of disgust. He had a look of, what are you doing? Because there is a symbiotic relationship there. So there's forgiveness in that. But he was looking at me. The second I said it, I knew. Because it was an example of what I'm talking about where he embedded that in my subconscious and it came back out. And as it was coming out, I wasn't thinking about where I heard it from. And so in that moment, I thought it was mine. But he knew. And I. And then the second I said it, I knew. And the look on his face told me everything I needed to know. And that's small. You know, it's like, that's not a big deal. In a conversation with friends, this wasn't being recorded. This wasn't being... This wasn't intended for posterity. You know, he knows that I don't go around and outside of his presence using things he said without giving him credit. But it was a moment where I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I just ripped that out. You know, I ripped that off. And it was caught. I was caught in the act. So I'm not it's not that I don't do this. You know, it's not that this isn't something that I haven't done in my own way. You know, nobody's perfect. Everybody's prone to this. Which is why I'm so aware of it. I think this is why I'm so aware of it. Is because everybody's prone to this. But you have to watch yourself. You have to keep an eye on yourself. You know, everybody's so... Everybody's keeping an eye on each other. Keep an eye on yourself. And that just comes back to what I'm saying about... At the beginning of the episode. About seeing myself in a harsher light... Than the light that I see other people under. I see myself in an even harsher light, and that's not a hateful light. It's not, it's not self-hatred that makes me see myself that way. It's actually self-care. In the same way that lifting weights, in the same way that working out is a greater form of self-care than sitting on the couch binge-watching and binge-eating ice cream or whatever the hell these people are saying about self-care. Self-care night, fried chicken and ice cream and... Binge watching Netflix. It's like, that's not self-care. You're going to feel like shit. And you, you need to do that every once in a while. You need, to, you need to eat shit sometimes. But people have this idea that that itself is self-care. Self-care is the balance between all these things. Self-care, though, is pushing yourself. It is working out. Self-care is seeing yourself under a very harsh light. And some people are afraid to do that because they do have self-hatred. But in order to overcome self-hatred, you have to be willing to stare into that bright light. And you have to be willing to see what it shows you. I mean, there's certain lights that I don't like to stand in because it becomes readily apparent that I'm balding. But are you going to deny the fact? You're going to deny that? You're going to get a hairpiece? What are you going to do? You know, uh, you have to be willing to stand in that light sometimes. And that's easy to do physically. But when it comes to, you know, seeing what's going on inside of you, keeping an eye on yourself in that way, shining the bright light inside of you, 
a lot of people are afraid that that's going to cause sort of a never-ending fall through the abyss of self-hatred when the reality is that you have to do that to get a rein. You have to do that to get a handle on your self-hatred. If you don't see yourself under that light, you're never going to know what's going on. And uh, so I, I recognize all this in myself. Even though I try to, as a human being, as well as a creative person, but first and foremost a human being, because that's way more important to me than creativity, that's way more important to me than anything else, is simply being a human being. And it didn't used to be that way. I used to put creativity on a much higher, I used to rank that way higher. I used to place way more importance on that than me as a human being. And guess what? That made me feel miserable. Not depressed, just miserable. There's a difference. There's a, there's a difference between misery and depression. But I, I felt miserable when I put creativity higher up, when I ranked creativity higher up. I was a much more petty person in, in every respect. But so being a human being to me is way more important than anything else, any kind of creative productivity, anything like that. Um, but, uh, I, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have ever felt that way if I hadn't had to look at myself under a very harsh light. And, and part of that though is realizing that there are certain things that you haven't quite gotten a handle on. And for me, that's sort of a petty reaction because I do feel the same way. It's even beyond my own involvement in something. When I see somebody blatantly rip off somebody else, somebody who isn't even my friend, isn't even anybody I know, when I just see somebody doing that, I have a petty response to that too. I think much less of the person who is ripping the other person off. And I actually refuse to change that outlook. Even though I love them too, even though I'm a human being and they're a human being and we must love our fellow man even in their shallowest moments, I'm still mad at them for ripping somebody off because you, you don't have to do that. And if you do do that, give them credit. Give them some credit because that is an infinite resource and if you're not willing to give someone credit, that means you're not doing something unique. That means that you don't have a handle on what you're doing. That means you don't have your own ideas. Because when you're willing to credit other people, that is an acknowledgement that you are standing on firm ground. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can 